This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. This week, we're continuing with our multi-episode series about hydrogen fuel cell cars. And so in this episode, we'll talk about the history behind the car and all the research and development that has been done to get us to where we are today in hydrogen fuel cell technology. We'll also talk about some of hydrogen fuel cells' strongest proponents and how the federal government plays a role in the history of the fuel cell car. We have a listener question as well from a returning listener, and we're kicking off a new segment, the Craigslist Challenge, which I'll explain more later in the show. But before we dive back into hydrogen, we have to talk about an update to a previous episode. For those of you who listened to our story about the Porsche-Volkswagen short-squeeze drama, you'll remember that the ultimate outcome was that the hunter became the hunted, and Porsche, who had been trying to take over Volkswagen, ultimately wound up being bailed out and absorbed by Volkswagen instead. Since then, the two automakers have worked closely together and developed a lot of cars, as you might expect, but last week Volkswagen shared a big update about its plans for Porsche. Volkswagen is considering spinning off Porsche into its own company once again, so history is truly repeating itself. And then Volkswagen would list Porsche separately on stock exchanges worldwide. And the reason the media cites for why Volkswagen wants to do this is to raise cash. Porsche is an incredibly valuable brand, and Volkswagen needs all the cash it can get its hands on to support its massive EV investments and ambitions over the next decade. And this move to spin off Porsche is inspired by a similar move that Fiat Chrysler did in 2015 to spin off Ferrari, which raised a lot of cash for FCA and was extremely popular among investors because Ferrari is a profitable brand, they make sports cars that are very profitable, and people will still buy them even when we move to EVs because the brand is just so well established. So Porsche is even more desirable as an investment here because Porsche sells way more cars than Ferrari and has a brand reputation that's equally strong and equally good at selling a lot of cars. And this would be a big moment for Volkswagen because if you'll remember from our short squeeze episode, Ferdinand Piëch had always viewed taking over Porsche as a crown jewel accomplishment of his career. But Ferdinand Piëch is gone. He passed away in 2019. And the remaining managers left at VW don't have quite the emotional attachment to owning Porsche that Ferdinand Piëch had. And so they see this as a simple business opportunity to raise some money, maybe only sell part of the company so they still control it and they can work together and they can take that money and invest in EVs. So we'll keep a close eye on any spinoff plans here and how they develop, but it just goes to show that sometimes what's old can become new again, with the old being an independent spun out Porsche. All right, now back to hydrogen cars. So our first thing that we'll talk about briefly here is the history behind the hydrogen car and who's been working on this. So my sources suggest that the original idea for the fuel cell car stretches as far back as the 1800s. And invention of the first working fuel cell was credited to a man named William Grove. But the first roadworthy fuel cell car was actually developed by General Motors in 1966. And General Motors took a commercial van, so it's like a big box van, and put a giant hydrogen fuel cell in the back. So the car had a range of 120 miles and could drive at 70 miles an hour, but the van could only seat two people because the fuel cell consumed 
the rest of the interior inside this full-size van. So if you think about the size of a full-size van, then that means the hydrogen fuel cell was about the size of a refrigerator. So this is going to be problematic, right? Because you can't have everybody driving around in these massive vans and only have room for two seats. So the technology was still very early in this day, but development from an automotive angle stalled out a little bit after 1966 and beyond because a lot of the engineers that had the necessary technical knowledge about fuel cells were instead working on the space shuttle program because fuel cells were also used to power certain things on the space shuttle. So when the space shuttle program closed, these engineers had all this free time and were looking for a job and automakers saw an opportunity here to apply these engineer skills from the space shuttle towards developing alternative fuel cars. Okay, so we know GM has been working on hydrogen cars, but who else has been working on these cars? So in addition to General Motors, the other automakers that have been working on this pretty consistently throughout the past several decades have been Honda, Ford, Nissan, Hyundai, and Mercedes-Benz. And so each automaker here tried various prototypes and different concepts, and eventually each launched a fuel cell car for the public. And each new release during the 2000s and 2010s became less and less of a science project and closer and closer to an actual car than the car that came before it. So the very first fuel cell car that was leased to consumers and that you could walk into a dealership and take home was the Honda FCX V4. And so the V4 stands for version four of the car. And so this name is kind of a mouthful, uh, but I think it was just kind of the internal coding. Um, if I remember correctly, the FCX stands for Fuel Cell Experimental Vehicle. And the FCX V4 was an, was a adopted version of the Honda EV Plus battery electric car from the 1990s. So Honda took a Honda EV Plus, which was a little two-door hatchback with two seats. They took out all the batteries in it that were there to make it an electric car. And in place of the batteries, they put a hydrogen fuel cell tank and a hydrogen fuel cell powertrain. So the FCX had a range of 190 miles and had a maximum speed of 93 miles an hour. So this is an advancement over the GM van from the 60s. Plus this car was quite a bit smaller. And Honda would lease this car to you for the low monthly payment of $11,500 a month. And at these prices, Honda lost money on each FCX because they came out and said that each FCX would cost them between $1 to $2 million to build. And in the end, Honda leased about 30 of these in the United States to various fleets and companies and a couple to individual consumers. So the very first FCXs were delivered in December 2002, according to Wikipedia, and the first two went to the Prime Minister's office in Japan and to the city of Los Angeles. So early on, these cars primarily went to government fleets, and Honda was mainly interested in getting lots of data over how these cars were used and what kind of conditions they were used under and how that affected the range. And this was a very early car in the hydrogen fuel cell space, right? So it was very expensive, um, cost the consumer a lot of money, but it was great for data collection. And later on in 2003, General Motors came out with this very revolutionary concept called the autonomy concept. And it was this idea that you would have this skateboard and inside the skateboard was all of the hydrogen fuel cells that you needed. And you would just put a different body on top. And so you could use the same skateboard and put different bodies on top of the car 
for different purposes. So you could put a van body on top, you could put a sports car body on top, and this was a hydrogen fuel cell concept in 2003, but the interesting thing is GM used what they learned from developing this concept car, which was never sold to the public, to build their battery electric vehicle cars. So GM is building this new platform of battery electric cars that use kind of the, the similar idea of a skateboard where all the batteries are in the floor and you put a different body on top. And other automakers who develop fuel cell cars, they came out with, with these models throughout the 2000s and 2010s, and most of them leased their fuel cell cars out because they didn't want the cars floating around on the used car market. They wanted to be able to take the cars back after consumers were done with their lease and take the car apart and analyze everything that had happened during the course of the lease. So these cars were mainly ways for all these different automakers to gather real-world data on how these fuel cell cars held up under daily driving and how consumers behaved when they owned or drove a fuel cell car. So the major automakers all have pretty good data on how gasoline car drivers use their cars, and they wanted to see if driving or owning a fuel cell car would be any different. So most of these were science experiments that were designed to further the technology. And this is kind of reflected in the pricing and the products that came out. So for example, the Mercedes-Benz hydrogen car was this weird, funky hatchback that they sold in Europe, but they never sold it in the United States. And they just developed their hydrogen car with what they had. I think Ford put their first version of a hydrogen car uh, inside a Ford Focus. They just took you know, kind of the simplest car off the shelf that they had. And so because these were all electric cars technically, and so the hydrogen fuel cell is just generating the electricity, um, similar to GM, most of these automakers applied the knowledge that they got from their hydrogen fuel cell cars towards battery electric vehicles as well. So hydrogen cars, even though they seemed like they were just a science experiment in the 2000s and that the technology wasn't going to go anywhere, the technology that the automakers developed and the things they learned from the fuel cell cars were applied to the battery electric cars that we're starting to see come on the road today. And now let's talk about the government's role in all of this. And so the government has always had an interest in promoting the development of clean energy vehicles. So the U.S. government recognizes that transportation and cars are a really large source of emissions and air pollution for the country. So there are lots of regulations that detail how much cars are allowed to pollute. And so as part of these efforts, the federal government supports funding for the development of clean energy vehicles. So during the 1990s, the Clinton administration developed this partnership called the Partnership for a New Generation of Vehicles, which we'll come back to in a later episode because that was pretty important. And PNGV focused on the on the development of diesel electric hybrid cars. And after the Clinton administration, the Bush administration launched the Freedom Car Initiative, and this funded research into fuel cell technology and other related technologies like plug-in hybrids. So Freedom Car provided funding for fuel cell-related and battery-related research projects, but the program was cut back in 2010 because fuel cells seemed very experimental, even after a decade of research uh, for recent development and various automakers leasing fuel cell cars. And so after Freedom Car was wound down in 2010, the Department of Energy set up an office inside of the department that was dedicated to fuel cell technology research. And they offered a lot of tax incentives 
for companies to invest in buying fuel cell vehicles and to set up hydrogen fueling stations for these cars to fuel at. And so some of these programs expired in 2019, but it's likely that we'll probably see some programs come back, even though right now a lot of the attention in the car business has shifted to battery electric vehicles. So in addition to Freedom Car, uh, the state of California also provided a lot of incentives to create a hydrogen fueling network, and this was through their Hydrogen Highway Initiative, which we talked about in the past episode. So the takeaway here is that the government has always been very supportive of the development of clean energy vehicles, and hydrogen cars are just one facet of their investment. And so a lot of the things that we're seeing today, a lot of those programs received grant funding through the Freedom Car Initiative in the 2000s. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. One group of companies that's really enthusiastic about hydrogen fuel cell cars are not who you think, and these are large oil companies like Shell and BP. So part of the reason why these companies are so excited about hydrogen fuel is they can use their natural gas infrastructure to facilitate the production of hydrogen fuel. So if you'll remember from our last episode, hydrogen fuel can be produced either through natural gas and reforming it and reformatting it, or by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then we combine it again later, and then the water vapor is the emissions from the car. So these oil companies believe that their expertise with fueling infrastructure and producing natural gas can give them an edge in setting up a hydrogen fueling network and supplying hydrogen fuel across the country. Because hydrogen fueling stations are much closer to gasoline stations than battery electric charging stations are to gas stations. So uh, if you think about battery electric charging, it currently takes maybe 20 to 25 minutes to charge a car using a DC fast charger. And so if you want to process the same number of cars as a gas station or a hydrogen fueling station, which fills up a tank in maybe five minutes, if you want to process the same number of cars, you would need way more battery electric charging stations than you would hydrogen fueling stations. And in addition, the hydrogen fueling station itself is much closer in technology and design to a gas pump. And so it's just that the fuel running through it might be different, so your pipes might be different and have some different materials, but the concept is much similar to a gas pump than it is to a battery electric charging station, which is has very little similarity with a gasoline pump. And also, the major oil companies have a lot of natural gas reserves and the ability to move natural gas around, and their argument is hydrogen fuel produced by natural gas can serve as this bridge technology between using gasoline today and hydrogen produced using cleaner methods like electrolysis, which involves splitting water, or other methods tomorrow. And so their argument is that's a much smoother transition to a completely clean energy grid than everybody switching to battery electric vehicles and having to build out this massive battery electric charging network, which a lot of people are working on now. And so this is mainly why 
the large oil companies are so excited about hydrogen is because they see a good business opportunity that fits very nicely with their existing portfolio of businesses, including natural gas pipelines, natural gas extraction, and delivering fuel to stations. Now it's time for listener questions. This week, we have a question from a returning listener. Tushmit from Austin writes in and asks, how do you decide between buying a used car versus a new car? This is a good question, and I think this is a question that has some complex answers tied to it. So a lot of times, whether it's better off going used versus new depends on the exact car you're looking for. So sometimes if you already know what car you want to buy, You might want to think about what the price differential is between a used version that is fairly new and a new version, and then decide if the price difference is worth the jump for you to go from the used one to the new one. So a really good example of a car that I usually recommend people buy new is the Honda CR-V. So for example, a brand new CR-V might be $28,000, $29,000, but if you go and look around for a one-year-old, two-year-old used one, it might be twenty six dollars or $27,000, and everyone has their own personal preference. But in my opinion, to pay an extra two dollars to $3,000 or about 10% of the price of the car to get a brand new one with no miles, with the full factory warranty, and to get all the latest features, and to be able to know the full history of the car and choose the, the exact color and trim that you want is really worth it to me. And also a brand new Honda CRV will be much easier and more convenient to buy than a used one because new cars are generally identical between each other and versus used cars where each individual car is kind of its own snowflake. So that's one factor that I take into account if you already know what car you want to buy. Now, a car that I'd probably buy used instead of new if I wanted to save money would be something that has a very steep depreciation curve in the first year or two of its life. So a really good example of this would be a Mercedes-Benz E-Class. So let's say you already know you want a Mercedes-Benz E-Class and you plan to drive it for a long time and you're comfortable with maybe some of the extra maintenance and repair costs that come with driving a Mercedes-Benz. Well, a brand new Mercedes E-Class can be $65,000, $70,000 and you can buy a two or three year old used one maybe in the forty dollars to $45,000 range right now, or sometimes even less, depending on if you're willing to get a three- or four-year-old E-Class. And so for something like that, where you can save almost 40% of the car's price, then maybe it's more worth it to think about buying used. And also that 40% is not on a small base number, it's on a big base number. So we're talking about a price difference of maybe twenty-five dollars or $30,000, And that pays for a lot of extra incremental repairs. But one additional factor is there's not as much excitement with buying a a used Mercedes-Benz as there is with buying a brand new one and getting it exactly the way you want with all the different options and features. So that's another factor to consider too, is the emotional decision. And if you don't know what car you want to buy, so all the previous conversation was about if you knew exactly what you wanted to buy and you're just debating the used version or the new version, but if you don't know what to want what you want to buy, and you're maybe considering a smaller, newer car versus a bigger, older car. It kind of depends on your personal preferences for risk uh, in terms of maintenance and repairs and the potential unknowns with the used car 
or the older car in this example versus uh, the desire to get an older car that maybe is more expensive originally and has more features and more creature comforts like leather seats or heated seats or a sunroof versus a brand new car that's about the same price that might be smaller and not have heated seats and not have a sunroof. And so a lot of that is personal preference and what you're looking for. And it just depends on your own tastes and preferences for risk. And finally, the third thing I might think about is that it depends on your time horizon for keeping a car and how much you know about how the car will fit into your life. So if you are buying a car and you only plan to have the car like a year or two and then you don't know how your life is going to change because you might move to a different city that's more or less friendly for cars, then maybe you shouldn't go out and plunk down $30,000 on a brand new Honda CRV. Maybe you should spend uh, $5,000 or $10,000 and buy the nicest CRV or the nicest RAV4 or insert other car here that you can find for the money. And that way you have less money tied up in your car. So then if you have to sell it, it's not as big of a deal. And alternatively, if you know your life is pretty stable and you're going to be living in the same place for 10, 12, 15 years, then maybe you do want to go ahead and splurge for a brand new car because you have good visibility into how the car will fit into your life and what you need. And so the chances are, if you buy a brand new car today, that car will probably still be the best fit for your lifestyle over the next five, 10 or 15 years if your life is pretty stable. So you, you can go ahead and splurge and buy a Mercedes convertible if you live in Florida or buy a Corvette if you live in Florida. And if you know that you're not going to go anywhere with snow, for example, then that's not a concern that a Corvette is probably not a great car to drive in the snow. So broadly speaking, to tie it all together, it kind of depends on the car we're talking about if you know what you want to buy. If you don't know what you want to buy, it depends on your personal preferences for risk and having different features and the size of the car. And third, it kind of depends on your time horizon for how long you'd like to keep a car and how much you know about how the car will fit in your life and how your life might change over the next five or 10 years. It's time for the Craigslist Challenge. This week, we're introducing a new segment to the show called the Craigslist Challenge. And the Craigslist Challenge is this game that I play with myself, or at least no one else has wanted to play it with me, and where I set a predetermined price parameter, say $5,000, $10,000, $15,000, or $20,000. And then I go to the used car classified. So I go to Craigslist, cars.com, various dealer websites, etc. And I find the most interesting option for X amount that was previously determined in Y city. So usually I'll choose a place where I've either lived previously or live currently, and this would be Atlanta, Nashville, or Austin, where I try to find a car. And so of course, something that's interesting is open for debate, and I'd love to hear from listeners about my choices in the Craigslist challenge and what you think about them as well. So drop us a line at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. But usually I try to focus my search for cars that I would recommend to someone to buy at these various price points for various use cases, like commuting, hauling truck-like items, uh, a beater airport car, a car for a new teenage driver, etc. And I figured it was time to start sharing some of what I found to try and inspire some possibilities for those of you out there who might be listening for advice on what cars to buy at different price points. So how this will work is I'll talk about the car, and the car is for sale at the time of taping. So usually I tape a couple days before the episode is released, 
And I'll post the link to the ad in the episode description so you can see a direct link to the ad while the car is still for sale. I'm not affiliated with any of these sellers, and so I don't make money whether you buy the car or not. I'm just putting up interesting listings that I find. And keep in mind that things on Craigslist can sell pretty quickly and things at dealerships can sell pretty quickly in this market environment. So if the ad's gone, it means the car's probably gone and you'll have to just assume that it was there when I was talking about the car on the show. This week for the show, let's set our budget at $5,000 and our city of interest as Atlanta, Georgia, as that's where most of our listeners seem to be coming from. So at $5,000, my expectations are pretty low. Uh, and at $5,000, I'm mainly looking for cars that are in clean condition with no major cosmetic issues. Um, they can have minor cosmetic and mechanical issues if they're properly disclosed and I can see what's going on. I'm also looking for cars that don't have any major mechanical issues. So uh, all these cars should have no check engine lights, uh, no major warning lights. And I'm also looking for cars where historical data has shown this car to be a reliable make and model. But sometimes uh, these cars may have been forgotten by the marketplace. Because if you think about reliable used cars, everybody has the same couple of candidates that they always look for. So everybody looks for Honda Accords, Honda Civics, Toyota Camrys. Toyota Corollas, and sometimes I, I find one of those, and they're great, but other times, because everybody wants those cars, those cars come at a premium, and I can find something just a little more interesting that's maybe a better value. And depending on the car, I'm looking at some pretty old things, and so it can be between 10 and 20 years old, and it can have 120 to 160,000 miles on the odometer, and that's kind of like a nice spot where this car can still have three, five, seven years of reliable service left in it, as long as it's been reasonably well cared for and the car doesn't have any fatal flaws that have come to light over the past few years. And so at this price point, it's all about getting a little bit creative and trying to find the things that other people may have missed, either due to age or due to brand or some other factor. At $5,000, I'm also not really looking at dealerships because a car that's $5,000 at dealer retail is a car they probably paid $2,500 or $3,000 for on trade-in. And so these are really like $3,000 cars if I go to Craigslist. So I'm focusing my search on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace for cars at $5,000 and below. And this week, I actually have two picks. So I have an obvious pick and I have a less obvious pick that maybe illustrates how if you get away from the super popular cars, you may be able to get a little more car for your money without sacrificing too much in reliability. So the first car that we have here is a 2001 Honda Accord two-door. And so it's pretty old, it's about 20 years old, but it's a one owner and has 105,000 miles. And so this car has a well-written ad that is grammatically correct, doesn't have all caps, has a lot of details in the ad. So the seller says that they are the original owners of the car and it's been in Georgia its entire life and has a dark gray leather interior. So it's an EXL model and the leather is in great shape with no signs of wear. The car's always been garaged and that seems to be corroborated here when I'm looking at these pictures. There's not a lot of paint fading and the interior looks like it's in really good shape for a 20 year old car. And these turn of the millennium accords were quite reliable. The main major issue in these turn of the millennium accords 
were the five-speed automatic transmissions in the V6 cars. So by going with the four-cylinder, you avoid the potential issues that come with the transmissions in the V6 cars. And so there's nothing major that could be wrong with this car. There's no like clear fatal flaw that befalls a large number of these. And it looks like it's been in reasonably well cared for condition, especially for a 20 year old car. And these, these older Honda Accords are actually incredibly fun to drive because back then a midsize car was much smaller than it is today. And so this car may feel more like a modern day Civic. And this was also back when Honda Accords had a double wishbone front suspension. So the handling was much sharper than its peers in the midsize sedan segment. So this car is definitely a gem. Um, it's available as of Sunday, February 28th. Uh, so I don't think this car is going to last long, but I'll put a link to it in the description. And the second car, which is our less obvious pick, is a 2005 Acura TSX that's listed for $5,000. And it's listed as having 108,000 miles. So mileage-wise, it's about the same age as that Accord that we looked at, but it's four years newer. And it's an Acura, which is the premium division of Honda. And so the interior materials are maybe just a little bit nicer than that 2001 Accord that we looked at. This ad isn't as well written as the Accord ad. So we don't know if he, this seller is the original owner or the second owner or the third owner. The seller does say that this car has been well-maintained and has a current emission certificate. If you're living in Georgia, you need that certificate to register the car in Metro Atlanta. And um, the pictures look pretty good on this car. There, there are some bumps and scrapes typical of a 15, 16-year-old car, uh, but the interior, the leather seats look to be in excellent shape, especially for a 15-year-old car. And so that's kind of what caught my eye was the quality of how well the leather is held up. And um, it's a little more premium, a little more practical than that two-door Accord. So this TSX is a four-door. And I have a lot of experience with these cars. So I actually drive an Acura TSX. Uh, mine's a 2007. And mine has a little bit more mileage than this. And it's been an incredibly reliable car. There are, there are no kind of fatal flaw issues with the first-generation TSX. And Similar to that Accord that we just talked about, this car has a double wishbone front suspension and is uh, is really, really fun to drive, especially for a car at this price point when it was new. So when it was new, it was kind of like half a category lower than a BMW 3 Series. And so its main competitors were the Volvo S40, the Saab 93, and kind of lower trims of the Mercedes-Benz C-Class. So this car was like a half a step lower than... Uh, the traditional compact luxury cars, but still gave you a lot of fun to drive and a lot of luxury touches that those higher end cars gave. And so these are great values new and they've been great values used as well because a lot of people kind of forget that when you're shopping for a reliable used car, in addition to looking at Hondas and Toyotas, you can also look at their luxury equivalents. You can look at older Lexuses, older Acuras, um, because oftentimes these cars will share the same underlying parts in engineering. And so, for example, for my TSX, I can buy a lot of the same parts that I would buy for a Honda Accord from the same year because they share the same engine block uh, and they're just tuned a little bit differently. So the cost of ownership on these are not that much higher than the Honda equivalents. Uh, of course, these cars have a little bit of quirks to them. So the TSX in particular, uh, requires premium fuel in the first generation cars. So that'll add some cost to the cost of owning the car. But 
uh, mine has been incredibly reliable. And so whenever I'm recommending a used car, I always look for a TSX as well, especially if they're shopping under $10,000. Uh, these first generation TSXs in particular were built incredibly well and have aged really well stylistically too. It still looks pretty sharp. And I still get a lot of compliments about my car, even though mine is uh, 14, almost 15 years old at this point. So um, definitely check this out. I'll put the link in the bio um, and you can see which one you'd buy. So what did you think of the Craigslist challenge? Which of these two cars would you buy or would you buy neither of them? And I'm just crazy for suggesting 15 and 20 year old cars to people to buy. Um, write in with your opinions, write in with your thoughts. If you have a price point and city that you'd like to nominate for the Craigslist challenge, write in as well. You can find us uh, at the email address companycarspodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And that's going to wrap it up for us this week. And so we look forward to our next episode, which is the third in our three-part series about hydrogen cars, where we'll talk about what does the future look like for hydrogen cars and what are the trade-offs between a hydrogen fuel cell car and a battery electric vehicle. We'll also talk about how the two technologies can complement each other and if there are certain use cases that are better for battery electric vehicles or better for fuel cell electric vehicles. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. Thank you for listening to our show, and make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.